My name is Travis McNeely. If you're a guest with us this morning, I'm the student and college minister here at Woodlawn Baptist Church, and I'm excited to continue this series on trusting, and this morning in particular, trusting the eyewitnesses. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we'll begin our first look at uh, the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll examine those three this morning. Um, And my main idea for this morning as we look at all of these accounts, is this. You can trust the eyewit- that the eyewitnesses, you can trust that the eyewitnesses faithfully told their testimony with great accuracy. You can trust that the eyewitnesses truthfully told their testimony with great accuracy. Back when I was in seminary, I spent some time working in the restaurant business, and I worked at P.F. Chang's, a really great restaurant. Uh, that we have one locally here. And while I was working at P.F. Chang's, I, I interacted with one of our busboys who happened to be an atheist. And uh, one day we're sitting down at lunch and he says, prove to me that Jesus is who he says he is, but you can't use your Bible. I laughed at him at first. I said, okay. I said, well, let me just start outside the Bible. Well, we have three extra biblical witnesses uh, that we could talk about. Josephus, and I went, went through Josephus with him, and Tacitus, and uh, Suetonius. But then after I had talked to him a little bit about those extra biblical sources that confirm Jesus' existence and his crucifixion, I went back to the Bible. And what I told him was that, look, these gospel accounts are the primary sources that we have of Jesus' life. If you're ever doing research on any historical figure, you got to go back to the primary sources, to the eyewitnesses. And that's what I did with him, but he didn't want to listen, so I moved on. And And as we look at these gospels, I'm just encouraged thinking of of last week's message of trusting the scriptures. These are the scriptures. These gospel eyewitness accounts, although we're going to examine them like that this morning, they are the scriptures. They are the word, the God-breathed word to us. And so as we're looking at this this morning, we can be reminded that we have actual eyewitness, firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection. They are credible. They stood the test of time through persecution and through even false teaching. The word of God still stands, and as we know from the scriptures, it will continue to abide forever. So to start off, let's define what is eyewitness testimony. Kevin Van Hooser offers this definition for us of what testimony is. It is this, testimony is a speech act in which the witness's very act of stating P, P being a variable, is offered as, as evidence that P, is being assumed that the witness has the relevant competence or credentials to state truly that peak. Let me put it with what our premise is today for the eyewitnesses. This is what they're arguing today to us. Testimony is a speech act in which the witness's very act of the Lord Jesus is alive. It's offered as evidence that the Lord Jesus is alive. It being assumed that the witness has the relevant competence, they're smart, they're not dumb, they, uh, they were eyewitnesses. They can truthfully tell us a story or the credentials. Yeah, they were disciples. They followed Jesus. That's the credentials they had to state truly that Jesus is alive. That's our definition of what testimony is, especially in relation to the resurrection. Now, there are different kinds of testimony, but in particular, when it comes to the gospels as a literary genre, this genre is one that attempts to convey the face and meaning of singular events of absolute significance. That being the only person who's ever risen from the grave. That has absolute significance for you and I today. Funny enough, uh, agnostic philosopher David Hume, 
Uh, he was what we called an empiricist, or someone who only believed that you could know truth through the physical realm, empirical evidence. He said this about eyewitness testimony. There is no species of reasoning more common, more useful, and even necessary to human life than that which is derived from the testimony of men in the reports of eyewitnesses and spectators. That's quite funny, isn't it? Yet he would reject the Gospels. He said you'd have to be able to empirically test them, but he says eyewitness testimony is credible. It's quite astounding. Now, as we go to the scriptures this morning, the scriptures that we treasure so dearly, the Lord, uh, our God, he has laid down in his law our rule for eyewitnesses. So we've seen the definition of eyewitness, what an eyewitness is. Now let's look at the rule. In Deuteronomy 19.15, this is the rule he lays down. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And that's for a crime, but the principle still stands. You need more than one witness to establish a charge. And what we have here, at least this morning, we're going to mention a plethora of witnesses, more than enough to meet the standard that's even laid down in the Old Testament, in the law of God, which is a reflection of God's moral and just character. When we look at the New Testament, we obviously have our four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four people who witnessed this. Now, since we're not going to be covering John this morning, I do want to read briefly, uh, just from the Gospel of John, two verses for you on the purpose of John's Gospel as an eyewitness account. He says himself, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why are they written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now to that brief introduction, let's go ahead and look at the eyewitnesses we're covering today in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 15. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then quickly, then go quickly, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. 
And notice this commentary from Matthew, this last line. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, let's examine this, this account. We have two women mentioned in the beginning, Mary and the other Mary. When we read John's gospel this morning, it was just Mary, Mary Magdalene. And then also notice, you're not going to notice this in Mark and Luke, but Matthew likes to emphasize a specific thing, earthquakes. At the crucifixion, there's an earthquake. At the resurrection, there's an earthquake. And here we see one angel. You're going to see in Luke's account, there's going to be two. And notice it even gives us descriptions on the guards. They, they trembled and became like dead men. Now the angel speaks with them for a minute and they depart quickly. They go to see with fear and great joy. A lot of these details obviously will be similar. So now turn with me to Mark 16. Go to the end of the gospel of Mark and let's look at Mark's account. And we're going to cover some context concerning Mark right as we hit the end of it. Of this passage, we're going to read verses 1 to 13. So Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, so this could be the other Mary, maybe, but it says Mary the mother of James, which is Jesus' half-brother, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So let's make some observations of this text as well. Uh, we see the, the three different women mentioned in this text. There was only two before. And here we see this, this dialogue between the women. They're walking there. They're, you know, they're, they can't move this massively large stone. They say, who's going to roll it away from us? We didn't get that in Matthew. We didn't get that perspective in Matthew. They recognized it was very large. And notice further in verse 7. You know, and, and when we read it in Matthew, it just said, go tell the disciples. In verse 7, we say, go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. We're going to get to that right at the end of here. Um, now, why is Mark as different as it is? It's, it's, it's a bit different. And for some of y'all, that might raise some doubts or questions. And, that, and, and questions are good. So let's, let's answer some of those questions this morning. Why is it as different? Is it, should it be concerning to us? No. If we look at what Papias said, now you guys are like, who's Papias? Well, Papias is actually a disciple of the Apostle John. 
He wrote a, a large amount of literature that we don't have accessible to us today, but through the church historian Eusebius, we actually have a bunch of, of things that he has said, and one of the things that he said has to do with Mark's gospel. Listen to what he said concerning the gospel of Mark. Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately everything he remembered. Notice this line, though not in order. Though not in order of the things either said or done by Christ. For he, for he neither, Mark, neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, followed Peter, who adapted his teachings as needed, but had no intention of giving an ordered account. And what he means by ordered is this, chronological. I'm gonna follow, this is what happened at this time, and this time, and this time. Mark organized it by the themes. And obviously there's gonna be some chronology there, right? You're not gonna have the resurrection in the beginning of the gospel, right? But regarding Jesus' ministry, he organized things by the themes. So continuing on, uh, Papias says this, consequently, Mark did nothing wrong in writing down some things as he remembered them, for he made it his one concern not to omit anything that he heard or to make any false statement in them. So Mark, writing down Peter's statements, it makes sense to us, right, when we would see in verse seven of chapter 16, go tell the disciples and Peter. Well, we have an emphasis on Peter, why? Well, because this is his testimony. This is his testimony. We see some of the differences there. And then, and then notice, actually, you can go ahead and turn one page over to Luke's gospel. And notice how Luke introduces his own account. It's, it's different from the way Mark talks about his account, right? Verses one through four of chapter one. Luke says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, notice this, to write an orderly account. So he's saying, look, I'm gonna put it in chronological order for you. See, Luke is meticulous. Luke, uh, from, from what we think we know, is that he was a doctor. He was a very well-educated Greek. We can notice that even by his Greek grammar. He used a lot more um, intellectually sophisticated words in writing his gospel account in Acts and Hebrews. And we see here, in writing an orderly account for you, he addresses most excellent Theophilus. It's addressed to some sort of Roman ruler. Why did he write this? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So as I said before, Mark wrote thematically and at the recollection of Peter, Luke went and he investigated one by one these eyewitnesses the women, the disciples, and he said, I, you know, I've been following this closely for some time, so he's been compiling all these things and making sure he's got it all straight, making sure he's got it all well-ordered. He, he, you can almost say he's like an investigative reporter, and he compiled for us a chronological account of what happened. So now let's turn to the resurrection account in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, this is what it reads. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? Let's stop there. Notice in Matthew and Mark, you don't see the angels recounting what Jesus had taught. But they lay it out here. Why? He's, he's getting every detail in from all the eyewitnesses and bringing it together and compiling this for us. So what's happened here is the, the disciples, this is a really important thing to note, they did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Every time Jesus had made this prediction, they would, they would say, no, Jesus, no, that's not going to happen to you. Why? Because they viewed Jesus as a triumphant Messiah to come and overthrow Rome, possibly, right? They saw him as that conqueror. To, to defeat all the enemies and put him as a footstool under his feet. So when their Messiah died a tragic death and was buried, they were mourning the loss. They, were, they had scattered from him and they had hid. They didn't expect him to rise from the dead, but part of that's because they just wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't trust in what he said. And now this angel's recounting them, don't you remember what he told you? That Christ predicted that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day, rise. Verse 8, read with me. And, and, and they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, here's the list of the women again, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, she's new, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So if by way of illustration, you know, some of y'all might be a little bit concerned, why didn't they mention Salome and Luke? Why didn't they mention Joanna and, and Matthew? Why, why, why? Well, let me put your conscience at ease. By way of illustration, let's just say I'm having a meeting in my office, and I, I invited Luke, Luke Lindsay, to come and meet with me in my office for, for a meeting. Now Luke comes, and he's on his way, and I say, say, hey, Miss Lee, um, Luke's coming, Um, just send him back when he gets here. So um, she's like, okay, I'll do that. And so she buzzes in, hey, Luke's coming in. All right, well, he comes in, but who comes in behind him? Cameron and Miriam. But she didn't tell me Cameron and Miriam were coming. Is she lying? No. What did she do? She focused on who I was looking for. I was looking for Luke, right? So not only that, but let's just say Lewis walks by, he and, and uh, Luke and Cameron have already made it in the hallway, but Miriam hasn't yet. And then he goes, oh, hey, Miriam. And Miriam wa- walks in back to the office. And so she, he's thinking, oh, I heard Travis is meeting with Luke from Lee, and um, Mir- I just saw Miriam, so he must be meeting with Luke and Miriam. Wait, he forgot Cameron, <laughs> right? You guys you got see how different people who witnessed it all from different angles would give their account if you were to ask them? So there, there's nothing wrong with Um, the different names you're seeing pop up here, right? It's just, this is their perspective, their account. Maybe another illustration. Maybe four of us are standing at uh, Jones Creek and then George O'Neill, Corsi, whatever it is, I know it changes. Um, And we're all at four different corners. And we see a massive car accident. Now, someone on the other side will see different details than I saw, right? And the people at the other corners will see different details. Maybe on my side, I saw the tractor trailer just totally smear like this uh, delivery truck or something. And on your side, you saw a motorcycle barely, barely miss that semi-truck. I didn't see the motorcycle. I didn't say anything about it. But when we report it to police, and us four on the four corners are saying that, they're not going to think we're, we're liars. 
or that, or that we got our details wrong and that we messed up in telling the story because they understand, police understand, and we're gonna see this in a moment, that as, as they co- try to compile a scene of a crime or a scene of a, an incident that happened, you're gonna have different testimonies, different things said that may even seem to be a contradiction what scholars would call an apparent contradiction. It appears to be a contradiction. But once you dive a little deeper and you look a little closer and you mull over those details, you'll see that there aren't contradictions to it. So continuing on, let's read the rest of Luke real quick. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, so the day Jesus rose again, the day the women saw uh, the risen Lord, that very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. It's quite interesting, isn't it, this account? They had even heard from the women themselves, but they refused to believe them. They refused to believe the account of what had just happened. Eyewitness testimony of what had just happened. But now they're about to find out they were eyewitnesses themselves of the risen Lord. Look down and what Jesus says in response in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, that would have been an awesome Bible study, amen? So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how, he was no, or, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
So now, not only have the women seen Jesus, and then these two who, it was becoming evening, and they were sitting down for dinner, and they recognized, wow, this is Jesus. So they go back, they don't even decide to stay where they're at, they decide, go back to Jerusalem, seven miles back, and let's tell them what happened. So they get there, and verse 36, this is all taking place in the same 24 hours. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, among the disciples, and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So they're marveling so much, they won't even go touch his hands and feet. They were just unbelieving with such joy. He's like, all right, hand me a fish. Let me show you. I am really here. I am alive. I have risen from the grave. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What a wonderful statement about scripture. That it's all pointing forward to Christ. When you are reading through the Old Testament, even in your Woodlawn reading plan, whatever you might be reading in the Old Testament, you can be assured that the law, the prophets and the Psalms are pointing forward to Christ, to predicting his coming. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus helps them to understand the scriptures. He helps them to, by telling them, look, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, upon you the, the, help of, the helper of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus goes into much more detail in the Gospel of John about. And, and we look here at the way he lays out the Gospel, from the Old Testament and from what had just happened now, that Christ should suffer, that's the Gospel, that Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise, it's the gospel. And what should the proper response to, to Jesus' death and resurrection be? It should be repentance. For what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. Repenting from your sin or from serving idols and turning to the living God. Because you have offended in holy, a holy and righteous God. You and I have all offended a holy and righteous God, so we need forgiveness. This is not just uh, an experiential thing that we experience in church, but it is partially, right? We experience the risen Lord in that the Spirit of God dwells in each of us if we are believers in Christ, but it's not just an experiential faith that we have. It is, it is a forensic faith or a reasonable faith founded on reasonable evidence, that being eyewitness testimony. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective and a Christian apologist. And last summer, our students, we, we went through one of his books uh, through the entire summer called Forensic Faith. And we talked about um, a, a thorough examination of the Gospels. 
His uh, first book that he did, uh, it was Cold Case Christianity. It was actually even featured, and he played himself in the movie God's Not Dead 2. And um, he, he says this uh, about what should we expect of eyewitness testimony. These are the expectations that, uh, of a dependable eyewitness. He, here's how they're dependable. Their statements are going to be perspectival, right? Each one's going to have their own perspective on what's happened. Uh, not everyone will be in the same position as the other eyewitness. Uh, Matthew and John are disciples. Mark is an interpreter of Peter, so a disciple of Peter, right? It's different perspectives. Luke, he wasn't a direct eyewitness in that he didn't see Jesus risen from the dead, but he talked to everyone who did, and he wrote it down. Uh, also, another, another way that we can know uh, eyewitness is dependable. They're personal. So, um, like, like I already highlighted a little bit, Luke was a little more educated, right? So he's more educated in Greek words. But, you know, you know, Mark, he wasn't as educated. But Mark's also, you know, it's funny about Mark, if, if he, he uses a lot of adjectives as he's speaking. So it's just different from Luke in that way. So he, he is writing personally. But as we know from Second uh, Peter, that as the, the writers of Scripture wrote down Scripture, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while we have 40 different authors of Scripture, there's all one author that guided them as they brought scripture to us. God, God's his breathed word to us. And also we have, lastly, their statements may contain areas of complete agreement. Their statements may contain areas of complete agreement. So in other words, what's he trying to say? You don't want two different stories, right? If you're trying to investigate somebody, you don't want two different stories. And in here, uh, you know, they obviously are all observing the same event. So we don't see that. We see that they do have complete agreement in many things. What are some of the things they completely agree on? Well, the tomb's empty. An angel did speak to women, right? Uh, the, the, they saw the risen Lord. There's a number of things that they completely agree on. That's what you want to look for when you're looking for a dependable eyewitness. He says this um, in, in his book, Cold Case Christianity. If there is one thing my experience as a detective has revealed However, it's that witnesses often make conflicting and inconsistent statements when describing what they saw at a crime scene. They frequently disagree with one another and either fail to see something obvious or describe the same event in a number of conflicting ways. The more witnesses involved in the case, the more likely there will be points of disagreement. Before I ever examined the reliability of the gospel accounts, I had a reasonable expectation about what a dependable set of eyewitness statements might look like, given my experience as a detective. It turns out that my expectations of true, reliable eyewitness accounts are met by the Gospels. All four accounts are written from a different perspective and contain unique details that are specific to the eyewitnesses. There are, as a result, divergent, apparently, apparently, but not really, apparent contradictions, recollections that can be pieced together to get a complete picture to show that there are no contradictions of what occurred. All four accounts are highly personal. We, we discussed that as well. They also contain several blocks where they're, where they're completely identical. And this may be the result of common agreement at particular points, important points in the narrative, or more likely the result of later eyewitnesses saying, the rest occurred just the way he said. So for instance, Mark was likely the very first gospel written. So Luke will leave out some details. Why? Because he understands that everyone's read Mark, right? If he's writing this to, uh, to others for the, for the church to know these things, they, they know that he's read Mark. And maybe even Theophilus had read Mark, maybe. So he understands, okay, he already has Mark's gospel. Let me give him an orderly account because Mark wasn't written orderly, right? And so he does that for him. 
So finally, the last account, John's gospel, clearly attempts to fill in the details that were not offered by the prior eyewitnesses. John, aware of what the earlier eyewitnesses had already written, he wrote his last out of all the other three gospel writers. He appears to make little effort to cover the same ground. What J. Warner Wallace says, is, I recognize that they were consistent with what I would expect to see given my experience as a detective. And he goes on even after that statement to argue for the inerrancy of scripture and how scripture is inerrant and its original autographs. So as we think about the evidences, as we think about the eyewitness testimony, post the resurrection, there are some important facts to have in mind. If you're skeptical today, if you, if you come with questions and you don't know if God is real and, and you're, you're sitting here listening like, you know, I still don't believe this. Well, consider these facts. We're going to only focus on three. The women were the first at the tomb. This is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Now, why is that important? Some of you are like, okay, they were, the women were the first. Well, it's very important. Given the Roman culture of the day, women were not considered credible eyewitnesses. Now, if you wanted to fabricate a story in the Roman ancient world, you would not have women being the ones to testify to see Jesus in in the Roman culture, right? So they're willing to let this culturally embarrassing thing for them be proof that, hey, we're not lying to you. If I was going to make this up, I would have made it all grandiose. You know, you guys know people who, who, who might make up a story or exaggerate a story a little bit and they make it all grandiose. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to tell it as it happened. And, that, and that, that's what they did. They told it as it happened. Obviously, um, like we talked about another, so we have women at the tomb. The second one that's obvious, multiple eyewitnesses, multiple attestations of the gospels. And lastly, I want to focus on this, the center of preaching in the church. Early on, the center of preaching. J.P. Moreland says this about uh, the preaching early on. It is highly probable that the resurrection was preached in Jerusalem just a few weeks after the crucifixion. If the tomb had not been empty, such preaching could not have been produced. And since it is likely that the location of Joseph of Arimathea's tombs was well known, he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, that's why it would have been well known, it would not have been difficult to find where Jesus was buried. In other words, if the church is out there just weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ saying, Jesus is alive, well, you know what the easy thing would be to do to shut the whole thing down? Produce a dead body. That's how you shut it down. But what do we see happen? That doesn't happen. They don't produce the dead body of Jesus. Why? For he is risen. He is alive. There are also various appearances of Jesus over a 40-day period uh, that took place. Mary Magdalene, the women leaving the tomb, and the Emmaus disciples, uh, Simon Peter, the disciples without Thomas, then the disciples with Thomas. We have uh, disciples at the Sea of Galilee, the disciples on the mountain in Galilee. We have the disciples immediately after the road to Emmaus. We have 500 believers at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, at one time. We have James, Jesus' half-brother, and then later we have Paul, when he's converted on the road to Emmaus, who sees Jesus, although that's not within the 40 days, it's still an appearance of Christ where he witnesses Christ. Now, you might be thinking, if you're a skeptic in this room, or if you're a believer and you've heard these objections before, the disciples were liars. That's an objection commonly given Uh, but it falls short very quickly. Why? Well, the lives of the disciples. Did you guys know that 11 
of the, of the 12 disciples. Obviously, Judas hung himself, so we just throw Paul in there. But out of the 12 with, with Paul, that 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. They were killed for the gospel. And then John was the only one who wasn't, he, he died of old age. So think about this for a moment, like logically with me, okay? If you knew it was a lie, would you die for it? No. Who would die for something they know is a lie? Like, okay, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm going to have my head chopped off for this. Like, who does that? Nobody does that. Now, if they were deceived, that's one thing. They, they would, a lot of people die for something that they believe in, but they're deceived by. But they were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus. It wasn't like they had a private vision and Jesus appeared to them privately. No, Jesus appeared before lots and lots and lots of people, 500 at one time. There was no reason for there to be this to be considered a lie. So that one falls apart. We also have what we saw at the very end of Matthew's account right there, right? The Jews paid off the guards. Tell everyone they stole the body. Do you think these wimpy disciples are going to get past some Roman-trained guards? One of the fiercest militaries of world history? They're going to get past some guards, and not only that, the seal on the tomb? There's no way. Justin Martyr, even in his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, a hundred years later, Trypho is bringing this up toward Justin Martyr, saying, yeah, you, your disciples stole the body of Jesus. They're still dealing with that, that false lie that was spread around. There's uh, the view that Jesus faked his own death. That's the Muslim view today. Well, in studying crucifixions, that's, that's quite impossible, uh, given how excruciating a crucifixion actually is to one's body. There's no way Jesus could have faked it. There's no way he could have came off the cross, and why would his disciples then go on and say he rose again from the grave if he just physically recovered? There's just no way. I thought this one was kind of funny. Jesus had a twin. (laughs) These people want to come up with anything they can to not believe in Jesus, right? My dad is an identical twin. And when when I, uh, I never, ever get my dad confused with his, his brother, ever. When I was a little kid, I did like once or twice, but, but you know, as an adult, I had no way. I, there's distinct features on both of them that are different. You, you got to think that the disciples walked around with Jesus for three years, day in and day out, that if his twin showed up, they'd be like, oh, hey, Joshua, you know, or whatever, right? <laughs> right? You know, he didn't have a twin, but you got to think that, that's just foolish. That's a foolish uh, objection. Another one was that they hallucinated. Now, hallucinogens today, usually just, it's a personal experience. It's a, it's a one-on-one thing happening. In other words, 500 people saw Jesus at once. There's no way a mass hallucination could have happened all at once. That just doesn't happen with the, the science behind hallucinations. Um, uh, also, uh, this is another one that people often say, there's a lot of time that took place from the time Jesus rose again from the grave in the accounts that we have to the actual writing of the Gospels uh, that really, what they say, mess with the disciples' accuracy. And so the earliest account that we have is actually 1 Corinthians 15, and, and Mark was written right around the same time as well, but he lays out the Gospel in that statement, which we covered last week. And in there, he mentions the 500 witnesses. Now, that likely took place 20 years after Jesus rose from the grave. One time when I was working as a server as well, I was, I was talking to an atheist as we were uh, folding napkins in the back. And they like to call me preacher around work because I went to seminary. And I said, you know, Ma- Max, you always call me preacher, um, but I- I've never asked you uh, yet, what do you think of Jesus? Well, he said he didn't believe in him and said it's all fairy tale. I said, okay. 
So I'll walk through a couple arguments with him about the faith and things to try to break down some barriers. And I got to the resurrection and he gave me that objection. And I told him to consider 1 Corinthians 15, the 20 years thing. He said, no way. I said, okay, let me, let's play this game. So give me a memory from 20 years ago that you could never forget. Like this happened, like 20 years, very vivid, first one. And he said, I can tell you that pretty quickly. I said, what's that? He said, it's the day I killed somebody. I said, wow. Um, I said, okay, uh, well, what happened? Well, he was drinking and driving, ran through a stop sign and killed somebody. He was in prison for 15 years. And as he's talking, um, he begins to tremble. His hands are shaking very visibly and he reaches in his pocket for an e-cigarette to smoke it in front of me because he's just, he's trying to calm himself down. And at that moment, I began to share the gospel with him and invite him to trust Christ. And he said, I got to go. I got to go. And he walked away. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, Max, thank you for calmly and just, you know, graciously engaging with me in conversation. I hope you'll consider what I share with you today. And we haven't talked again since, but I know, I know that got to him, obviously. There's many people who are skeptical, maybe people that are your family members. Let me encourage you. The word of God is trustworthy. The eyewitnesses are trustworthy. And there's so much evidence out there to be able to talk with someone about your faith. You don't have to go to seminary to be able to talk to someone about your faith. You don't have to be able to summarize these arguments perfectly. But as you study God's word, look closely at what it says and be encouraged by what it says to go and tell others that Jesus is alive. Some people have said, well, Jesus is just a legend. He isn't real. This is all fabricated fairy tales. Well, even agnostic scholar Bart Ehrman, who used to be a Christian, he walked away from the faith. You know what he said? He said this, make it almost certain that whatever one wants to say about Jesus, at the very least, one must say that he existed. So, Famously, C.S. Lewis put it, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. People have added another L, legend. He's either a liar, legend, lunatic, or Lord. He's not a liar. He proved it. He's not a lunatic. He's not crazy. He's definitely not a legend. We know he existed. He is Lord of all, and we can worship him as such. So for us, Woodlawn, we know the place where Jesus died, Golgotha the place of the skull. We know when, 2,000 years ago, that's when, that Jesus died by crucifixion and was seen by many. None other than Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know to be the apostle John. Before the sundown of the Sabbath, he was prepared for burial, and there he was laid, and he rested. Three days later, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. While there are differences in the resurrection accounts, but given the different variations, it actually is not a problem for the reliability of Scripture for us and the historicity of Scripture. Be encouraged today that that's the case, because this indicates for us that the evangelists or the gospel writers are independent witnesses who do not attempt to collude the story. They don't attempt to meet together and say, all right, let's get the details right, let's get it. Let's get it all together. They do it from their own perspective, and that's how we can know. If they were the exact same, we would know that this was fabricated, but they're not the exact same, although important details are there. The tomb was empty, the resurrection was announced to women, and the disciples met the risen Jesus. And in that, we can have confidence. 
So unbeliever, I'm talking to you. If you have been resisting the call of the gospel this morning, lay down your arms. You are a rebel. But we were all once rebels too. I was a rebel. I was an enemy of God. Stood condemned under his wrath. His just and holy wrath. But because of what Jesus did on the cross as my atonement, he bore the wrath of God for me. He justified the ungodly. He declared me righteous. And he declared brothers and sisters in this church righteous. You as a rebel unbeliever are unrighteous, but you can be made clean this morning. Will you lay down your arms? Will you put your skepticism aside and look at the evidence and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Maybe if you're a new believer in Christ, some of the things I said maybe troubled you a little bit this morning. Let me encourage you. Study scripture. Know the word of God. It shouldn't trouble you. It should bring peace. Even as Jesus approached the disciples after the road to Emmaus in, in that room, he said, peace be with you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart's new believer. And let me encourage you to dive into God's word. When I was a young believer, I had doubts and questions. Running from those doubts and questions did nothing, but seeking them out did, and I became stronger in my faith. New believer, would you be strong and seek Christ? and be amongst the body to grow. Maybe for you, faithful believer, today this message, let it remind you of the treasure of what we have in the word of God. To daily study it, to daily pour over it, and to learn about our Lord and Savior. That we can read and know that this is accurate. We can rejoice that it is, and we can go and tell others the joy that we get from being in God's word. We go and pour it out on others, that they might join us in this joy that we have. You can trust that the eyewitnesses truthfully told their testimony with accuracy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. That, Father, you gave us these gospel witnesses to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Father, for anyone in here who is skeptical, soften their heart. Let them come and know that there is room in your family. That they'd become a child of God, that they'd receive the truth of the gospel and be changed. This morning, if that's you, let me encourage you, come forward. Come and trust Christ. For you, believer, this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, I pray that through this series we do, through the entirety of the series, that your trust in the Lord will be, made, will be made evident by the way you so gladly serve him, you eagerly read his word, and faithfully serve in the church and seek and save the lost. This morning we are going to respond corporately to the preaching of God's word through, through singing and response. May your hearts be drawn to what was preached this morning and to, to Christ.
We pray this in Jesus' name.